neighborhood. <laughs> so what would you do? You're 13 or 14. You are way past curfew. And you have to get into that house. And inside the front door, in the living room, is your mother. She will not sleep until you're home safely, even if you're at one of her sister's houses around the corner. The back door is no better because that's where their bedroom is and your dad is sleeping. And if you wake him up, World War III will start. So what would you do? I'll tell you what my brother did. He shimmied up between the two houses. If you look on the right, he shimmied up between those two houses, opened his bedroom door, and climbed in his bedroom window, rather his bedroom window. My mother hears the noise. I'm in another bedroom. She screams, blood-curdling scream. What would you do if you were my mother? I'll tell you what she did. She pushed him back out the window and said, you come back in the right way, young man. So I'm laughing my head off. That's what I did. And just a few minutes later, I heard this little knock on the front door. That's that's the life that we had in that fortress there where we grew up in the city. Well, it's often fun to imagine different scenarios when it's like, well, if I was there, I would have done this or I would have done that. Well, that silly story sets us up for a different question, but in the same vein, what would you have done if you were Jesus? After rising from the dead. Who would you go see? Where would you go? What would you say to them in the weeks that you had? For the next few weeks, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at some of those experiences that Jesus had and encounters with people after he rose from the dead. Not necessarily in chronological order, but we'll watch how each different uh, encounter had an impact on the lives of those disciples then and carried through and honestly has an impact to us even today. So today, we're going to look at one of those encounters, but not the first one after he rose from the dead. In fact, this one is a couple weeks later. And if you want to follow along, you can turn to John chapter 21. I apologize because the app notes that I submitted on Thursday look a lot different than today because I did some editing, so I'm not going too crazy. But before we get to John 21, where we'll go back and forth, um, we want to see a couple notes to set this story up. Interestingly enough, compared to the rest of Jesus' life, not much is written about the weeks after the resurrection, which boggles my mind. In fact, from God's vantage point, though, I think it's what he thinks is just enough for us. The time between when he rose from the dead and the day he ascended into heaven is 40 days, which Luke tells us in the book of Acts says, during the 40 days after he suffered and died in Acts 1-3, he appeared to the apostles, this is the phrase that gets me, from time to time. And he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. So he appears to many, but not all. It's one of the most counterintuitive things I think we can find about him. Paul gives us a glimpse of who Jesus did appear to when he writes in 1 Corinthians 15. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Okay, so that's just a little bit of what's behind there. So let's jump into the story in John chapter 21. It'll be in the first 14 verses. 
It's now more than a week after Jesus rose from the dead. And the chronological look we have for you on the screen actually comes from that discipleship guide. So you can see that by now, the first day has happened where he appeared to the women at the tomb. He appeared to two disciples who were walking away from Jerusalem, absolutely despondent, seven miles north to Emmaus. And then they rushed back to tell the disciples that they'd seen him. And they're in that house in Jerusalem where they had all had gathered and were sharing what was going on with this bewilderment and excitement. Jesus appears to them. All of them were there except for Thomas. They were shocked. They were afraid. They were, in, they were overjoyed and, and in awe all at the same time. All of those emotions all at the same time. And then he's gone. He, he just leaves. And it's a full week before he appears again. And during that week, we see the disciples are telling Thomas, no, no, he was there. We, we, we saw him. We saw the scars on him. And for whatever reason, Thomas just could not, does not believe. Until a week later, they're in Jerusalem in the same house. They're all there again. And this time, Thomas is there. And Jesus appears. Thomas is is flabbergasted as they were. He is in awe, and Jesus shows him his scars and calls Thomas to the kind of deeper faith he's been speaking to them all along. And then he's gone. Nothing. There's no other appearance that day or that week. It's sometime later, John tells us, when he, he comes across them. There are no special meetings. There's no large gatherings or all kinds of travel or Jesus posting on social media, taking selfies with his disciples, um, nor do we find him uh, um, selling t-shirts for a, a tour that he's going to come back with. No, we find Jesus who is always intentional, doing things much different than we might do, and he is in far less of a rush, I know, than I would be knowing I only have so many days before I ascend into heaven and I'm gone from the face of the earth until I return. So it's been some time since the disciples had seen him there in that house in Jerusalem. They've made their way out of Jerusalem now, and so they've headed east to the Jordan River and made their way all the way up into Galilee, which was 70 miles away. And you can, it's hard to tell from that map, but the terrain, if you went straight as the bird's eye, you know, as the crow flies, it's just very mountainous and very hilly. And so it's easier, and the road is far more traveled, to head straight east to the Jordan River and make your way at 70 miles. 70 miles. Can you imagine the conversations in those 70 miles? The fun side of me thinks the ribbing that was going on between the disciples. Almost like Jesus is driving the car and it's like, stop it, stop it, stop it. Stop messing with your brother. You know, like, oh, can you imagine, hey, Thomas, we told you, doubter, unbeliever, hashtag slow to catch on, dude. You know, maybe then he goes back, well, yeah, you're the denier, Peter. Big talk, small walk, big, stop, 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 stop. And Jesus, okay, sorry, that's just the, the fun side. But seriously, how incredible would it have been to walk those 70 miles with them and hear them talk about all the stuff that was starting to click, that they'd seen Jesus twice for some of them um, come back from the dead and, and, and could touch him. Uh, I can't imagine all of the things they talked about and the additional questions that they have, including when are we going to see him next? Will he be there as soon as we get to Galilee like he said he would be there? 
Would it be another week like it was this last time? And what about that fishers of men thing? I mean, what does that look like now that he's going soon? So they're headed to Galilee, though, because actually that's what Jesus told them to do. Right after the Lord's Supper, Matthew says it this way. Jesus says, but after I have been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and I will meet you there. It's also what Jesus told the women when he saw them right after he rose. The first thing he said, and he says to them, now, go and tell his disciples, including Peter. Oh, there's so much there, but that'll come next week. Including Peter. That Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you before he died. So they went and waited and waited. And while Jesus had a tremendous calling for them, there were still some things that needed to be said and needed to be done before they could live it out. They just didn't know what all of it was yet. So they waited. So when would he come next? They didn't know. So Peter says, I'm going fishing. And so six others join him. So seven professional fishermen who knew how to fish, they'd made a living doing that way. That's what they decided they're going to do. You see, they knew, they had used fishing, uh, gone fishing for a living. They caught fish, sold them, used them to feed their families, but made money in that way, put bread on the table. But a couple of years earlier, they had dropped their fishing. They had followed Jesus and following Jesus all the way along, all this time, all their needs were met. They didn't need to fish anymore. See, but now he's gone and he hasn't come back. And so let's grab a boat and let's go. They are in this in-between time. They would go back to doing what they knew to put bread on the table. But Jesus hadn't come back yet. A side note, he told them he was going to meet them there. But again, he's not there yet. And by now, though they learned he always did what he said, he hadn't shown up. Is it possible that you are in an in-between time? That you feel like you're waiting and waiting and waiting? Well, then you know how those disciples felt. And I think if they were here now, it's not hard to imagine that they would sit next to you, they would put their arm around you, and they would say, he's never late. He'll be here. Just stay in Galilee a while till he comes. So those seven seasoned fishermen grab their gear, they jump into their boat, and they hit the beautiful Sea of Galilee. And they fish, and they fish, and they fish all night and get nothing. Seasoned fishermen knew the Sea of Galilee, went out at, like, like, at night like many of them did, and they have absolutely nothing. The sun is beginning to rise on the Sea of Galilee. And as it does, somebody on shore, about 100 yards away, yells out to them, as fishermen do, did you catch anything? Nope, we didn't catch anything. Well, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll, you'll get some fish. That seems crazy to me. You've been fishing all night, probably right there, like, oh, suddenly I'm going to drop my nets and stuff's going to come up. Well, they do what the fisherman, the, the person said from shore, 100 yards away. And sure enough, the, the, the nets are full. They're absolutely packed. 
And, and, and sure enough, they do what the person had said, but until now, they didn't know it was Jesus. But when that happens, boom, it, make, it makes clear sense to all of them. And John says it this way. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, because he had stripped down for work. It'd be like me at the beach, like someone's coming. I'll throw a t-shirt on and go, you know. And he jumped into the water and headed to shore. I would add, leaving his buddies to do all the hard work, bringing the, bo the boat and the fish back. I bet he heard that later. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore for they were only about 100 yards from the shore. John realizes at first, and then Peter just bolts. He jumps in and goes. And though Jesus is 100 yards away and it's dawn, they know it's him because something similar happened to them, as I said, a couple of years earlier. Luke's the one who tells us that story. This was fairly on in Jesus' ministry. He hadn't done many miracles at all and only had a few followers, and among them were these, some of these fishermen, Peter and Andrew and James and John, who were professional fishermen. Then, as, back then, as it was at this time now, they fished all night, and they got nothing. And even though he's exasperated when Peter, Jesus says to Peter, go out into the deep, Peter see, has seen by this point, even though he doesn't know Jesus all that long, there's something about this Jesus. There's something about him where, where Peter says, because you say so, I'll go. So they do. They drop their nets and their, their nets almost tear. They're just so full, they can't pull them in fast enough. Luke tells us Peter's response is this. He falls to his knees, and he said, oh, Lord, please leave me. I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. Peter was awestruck, as were the rest, James and John and the others. In that ripe, teachable moment back then, Jesus tells them to not be afraid of what they just saw and experienced, but that he will make them fishers of men. Follow me, and that's what I will make you out of. So now, a few years later, when it happens again, they instantly realize who it is. And instead of falling at his knees, Peter dives right in and he can't get to Jesus fast enough. The same Peter who just a few weeks before had said he would die for Jesus, but denies he even knows him. That same Peter swims as fast as he can to get to Jesus. That Peter who heard Jesus teach about love and forgiveness time and time again, now had experienced it at such a deep level, he can't wait to get to Jesus. Eventually, the guys on the boat get the, the, the net to shore and full of fish and discover Jesus has some breakfast waiting for them, uh, cooking over a charcoal fire along with the Middle Eastern staple, fresh bread. Jesus asked them to bring some of the fish they caught, and who goes first to get it? Peter. I don't know, maybe it's because he's starving. Maybe he figures he owes the guys because they pulled the fish in themselves. Whatever, regardless, he drags them at the shore, and they enjoy a meal with Jesus. I want to bring this all to one final observation and then share three stories of some of our own people. The wording from this final uh, observation reflects the words of one of my favorite theologians, Dr. Seuss. And I would describe the observation this way. Oh, the places Jesus didn't go, the people he didn't see, 
and the things he didn't do. Jesus didn't hold a revenge tour with hashtag I'm back and I'm coming for you on social media or with links to buy special t-shirts. Me, I could think of all kinds of things I'd done if I'd arisen from the dead. He could have gathered all of the witnesses who were brought to testify against him who lied into a courtroom. Those same people who were part of a trial that had him pronounced guilty and condemned him to death. He didn't, he didn't do that. He didn't even go see them. And then there were the temple guards who blindfolded him, surrounded him, and took turns just slapping him and mocking him. So who hit you this time, Mr. Holy Man? He didn't do anything to them either. Didn't even go see him. Nor did he suddenly show up every time Pilate washed his hands and say, hey, buddy, having a hard time making those hands clean of all that blood you have on them? Here, try some special soap. And, and then there were those cruel Roman guards who forced a crown of thorns on his head, made him wear a purple robe after being beaten and mocked over and over and again and striking him in the face as well. Nothing. He didn't go seek revenge on them either. Or Herod. Herod, who wanted Jesus to perform a miracle for him. Come on and show me a miracle, Jesus. I hear all kinds of stuff about you. And peppered him with question after question, only to be frustrated at the lack of answers. And so be done with him and send him off to Pilate, who also, who also obviously had Herod himself, could have stopped all this. Nothing. Jesus doesn't go back to Herod either. Or all the religious leaders who tried Jesus in a mock trial, who used lying witnesses, declared him guilty, condemned him to death, spat in his face, beat him with their fists, slapped him and mocked him the entire time. He didn't suddenly appear at their next council meeting and say, did you miss me? I told you. He didn't go to them. Nor did he go to all the people who one week before the crucifixion hailed him and then screamed a week later, kill him, crucify him. He didn't gather all those people into some large arena and, and, and straighten them out. He didn't go to any one of them, nor, nor did he march to Rome to confront Caesar, the one with all the political and military power at his disposal, the one who made so many people's lives miserable, the one who claimed to be God. No, he didn't go to Caesar either, nor did he hold a large gathering in the Roman Colosseum. No, that's not Jesus. That's not the way he was then or the way he is now. In spite of the enormity of the pain inflicted on him by so many he didn't rise from the dead and give up on mankind and say, I'm done. He didn't change his plan at all. No, he still loved everyone. He did then and he does now. The question is not whether or not Jesus loves, but what we will do with that love. Then as now, there will always be people who are too stubborn, too hurt, too proud, angry or whatever, to let go and trust and follow him. But he will never stop from extending his hand. Oh, the places Jesus didn't go, the people he didn't see, and the things he didn't do. But what he did do 
And where he did go was to a beach in Galilee to reiterate what he called those disciples to a couple of years early, that if they would walk away from their old life and follow him, he would form them into men and women who would boldly and courageously share his love. It was at a beach where he reaffirmed his love and called on their, li- and their call on their lives. It was at a beach after hours of hard work, professional fishermen with nothing to show for it, that they reminded, he reminded them to trust him for guidance and provision, especially moving forward as he would lead them and entrust the Holy Spirit to guide them. It was there at a beach where he said he'd meet them in Galilee. And he did. He said he'd make them fishers of men. And he would in ways they couldn't even imagine. Not at a coliseum, but on a beach. I appreciate what Scott Hazy says. We don't need only a stained glass Jesus who is otherworldly and who speaks words only meant for the holiest and most obvious of sacred events. We need Jesus in the kitchen amid pots and pans, as Teresa of Avila put it. We need Jesus on the beach and at the office and in the car with us. We need a Savior who accompanies us on our everyday journeys, who sees us in those ordinary circumstances, and who speaks into those times and places too. This is Jesus. And I'm so glad he didn't do what I might have done. Because in spite of all the people who worked to have him killed, he doesn't rise to seek revenge, but continues to invite people to follow him. And if you're willing, just like those disciples and all who've gone before us, you can be changed by this Jesus. I close with three brief stories of people in our congregation who have been changed by this Jesus. First is Jeff Asher, said that during his freshman year at Purdue, multiple Christians shared the Lord with him. He typically said, well, I'm Catholic, so yes, I'm a Christian. But that was not what they were asking. One of his best friend's brothers, who he valued highly, shared with him and took him to buy his first Bible. And he saw the change in that friend's life. Then his best friend, the brother, actually got saved at Butler, came to Christ at Butler University, and their father, Bob, shared Christ with him, following Jesus with him. And through, re- and through reading the Bible and all those testimonies of those guys in his life, he knew he had to switch from knowing about Jesus to knowing him personally. He surrendered at the end of his freshman year, asked forgiveness, repented, and invited Jesus into his life. I was transformed and am continually being transformed. That is just one of the many legacies of what happened way back when Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of men. Who reads some, who reads some, who reads some. And then there's Tyler Garrick who said, I've always known my grandparents to be extremely generous with everything they have. But every year I found out some, a little something new that they do for others that I didn't know before. Their humility and generosity is something that can only be explained by Jesus' presence in their life. And lastly, his wife, uh, his wife um, Abby, responds to the same thing. Um, who shared Jesus' love with you in a way that couldn't help but you believe in him? She says it's Ashlyn Heinegger. She's the type of friend who will drop everything to genuinely care for people. She follows her words with actions and doesn't hesitate. I had a rough week recently, and Tyler was out of town for work. She brought me dinner and sat with me as I processed through things. 
She actively listens and made me feel so loved and heard over and over again. I'm so glad I have a battle buddy like her in my life. So now the ball is in yours, court. What would you do with all that you know about this Jesus?